Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks for listening, especially you first-time listeners. We have a great episode today. Our guest is Stuart Goldsmith, a stand-up comedian and host of the Comedian's Comedian podcast. He's from the UK, so get ready for a great accent. He has great advice about comedy and shared some wise thoughts about pursuing a career. Advice, I think, is applicable to people in any industry. So I think you can get a lot out of this. Let's get right to it. Here's my chat with Stuart Goldsmith. One thing that I think is really great about your performance style is since you I I see this and I don't know if you would agree. But since Mm -hmm. you trained at a circus school, I feel like you use your body in such a way that the average comedian is not. Would you say that's fair? Oh, thanks for noticing. Yeah, I suppose. Um, I think I I don't know if I can p- put it all on circus school, although we did do lots <laughs> of physical stuff. I mean, that was it's such a cool thing to drop. I think it's a cool thing to drop. Like I went to circus school, guys. It was like a nine month <laughs> course. I was a teenager, so it was part okay. of my youth. But we did do we did do some things which I uh, think of from time to time, like. Um, like we started off being elements physically, like be earth, be air, be fire, be water. And and you all sort of, you know, workshopped it and saw each other's versions and things. And then they would, and I was like, you yeah, know, okay, fine. And then they would complicate them. It would like be butter melting in a pan. And you'd go, oh yeah, how does butter melt in a pan? And you'd kind of, it would, it would lend the sort of, I don't know, some, I don't, here's the thing. I wasn't very good at circus school. <laughs> I found it incredibly difficult. I don't think I was very good at any of the exercises. But since then, I have come to learn that when you're being butter melting in a pan, it's really just about the eye contact. And and so there is a an element of it, which is, which I certainly, I certainly, uh, it's a very creative place for me doing an act out. So I always try to, that's a note I seek when I'm working with no, not directors necessarily, but just friends watching my set. I'm like, just tell me if there's any physical things I mention that I don't act out. Like if I mention broccoli and I don't bother being broccoli, I want to know because I, there's a, probably an opportunity to be broccoli and that'd be quite fun. That's a really good idea. I mean, there are two good ideas there. One is to ask people who you trust, who are watching, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like what they expected or, or uh, what's something that, was anticipated that you didn't end up doing and the other thing is to always look for opportunities to act out something i I think a big part of what i enjoy about stand-up um is that i'm far too english to say what i'm good at but uh, (laughs) let's do it let's do it a thing i'm good at and is noticing and it's a weird thing in comedy it's not a particular way in which i'm funny so much as uh, my the thing I'm I get really excited about is efficiency, creative mm. efficiency, learning how to spot a thing that works and replicate the environment in which you discovered it. Does that make sense? That makes so complete sense. I think that 
um, there are certain things I do, I speak for my own practice, whereby I notice, oh, I'm being good here. And I, what I try to do is not recreate. The temptation is to recreate the joke. Like if there's a voice you do to do that voice more often. But that is where that is where kind of discovery ends and hackery begins, really, isn't it? You go, that's a funny thing. I'll do that thing again. We've all seen people do a pullback and reveal style joke. And you go, OK, that's a pullback and reveal. Good for you. And then they'll do five pullback and reveals in their set. And you go, oh, you're not so much a comedian as a sort of trained animal. <laughs> You've learned a thing and you're doing it again and again and again. Whereas I think it's more exciting to try to recreate not the joke, but try to recreate, recreate the circumstances under which you discovered a particular thing, because that way you can discover more and more fresh things. God, I'm so pompous. I'm like, <laughs> what am I, five minutes into this recording? And I'm like, mm, this is my creative system. No, but All I, I mean love is, that, That's though. what I'm excited about. <laughs> yeah, and I've heard something similar to that before about, like, how you're not really – Trying to, I don't. I'm sure you've heard of Rory Scovel. He's a good example of what I I'm talking about. I love Rory Scovel. So yes, he's a great example of this. Yes, right, because you know, I I did a show with him. He was doing back to back shows in the town that I'm originally from, and I was hosting or, or opening on the first night, and I went to the show the second night just to watch. And I was talking to him, and he said, "I I I can't recreate last night. I know I can't do that." And last night went really well. And it's because he's so spontaneous. Even if he knows he's going to use some of the same jokes, he is saying, how can I find that moment that you're talking about and, exactly. and do that again and not just do the thing that made people laugh the last time? But find the exactly. moment. Because and it's that's the moment. The temptation, right? That's right. The temptation. It is. It You're is. out there in the mouth of the wolf and you might not be being funny this time. Oh, God. <laughs> what worked last time? Of course, the temptation is there. And I'm not saying I'm immune to that temptation. Oh, God. Right. But um, I, I think that trying to, I, I am funniest often when I'm in free fall. And you can't pursue the same free fall. You can't jump out of the same plane at the same point twice and follow the same route down. So I um, it, it just try to jump out of a completely new plane in a completely new direction every night. That is, and I'm absolutely, I want to be clear about this. I aspire to that. I absolutely don't claim to do it, but I aspire to it. How does that come into play when you're doing a set like you did your Conan set? And, and that's, you know, for instance, in that, that's where I see your physicality. Sure. But when it's something, and, and I know that every talk show is different, but I do know that the people who are, are getting, who are booking the comics, really want to make sure it's a honed act and and try to make sure you do the the certain jokes. So, you yep. is it harder to do what you're talking about in that sort of setting? Um, yeah, oh, absolutely, and um, that is one of the 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 real. It's a sort of a, a tragedy of TV comedy or stand-up comedy on on TV, is that they want a script. There's a fantastic uh, guy in the UK called Terry Alderton, who is just one of the most um, uh, imaginative and kind of wildly imaginative acts. Or another one, uh, Phil Kay, a Scottish act, brilliant um, guy. They're kind of, they're not similar really, but they are similar in their complete refusal to have a script and follow the script. 
And as a result, you don't really see them on TV. And it's, it's, it's just confounding because they're brilliant and you just wish TV would trust that. But it's about risk, isn't it? And TV can't afford to have risk. I'm, I'm doing an online chat show at the moment every Monday. And I, I want there to be real risk. But I'm also in my very miniature role as a producer. I'm aware that I want the show to go well. So I want people to take risks, but not too many risks. And that's sort of the opposite of what we as artists, as comics, should be doing. So, yeah, it, there is it's very hard to be on free fall to be in free fall when you're on tv obviously you can edge towards it you can say a word a bit differently or have a different word choice or if there's a number in a joke you can surprise yourself by choosing a different number to try and shake yourself up and make yourself laugh and make yourself on the wrong foot so that it feels a bit more live but then that of course introduces an element however small of risk and it often feels like you don't want there to be risk you're like no this is the olympics now my tv set this is where i want everything to work but it's not sport is it it's not the olympics it's an opportunity to to do a mad wild thing so yes i don't know i mean i i think there's a lot of parallels i think with um you'll have heard on this show i'm sure um and it's, it's certainly come up a lot on on my own podcast the idea, like an analogy between comedy and sport, people are forever saying, you know, it's not a, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Does, do you have that in the states? Do people say that about your career in comedy? I, a, I have heard marathon, that in the, but specifically in the context of late night talk shows. Like Conan has said that a few times. I've heard oh, him yeah, say that okay. a few times. It's applicable to everything. All it means but it is, is you've got to keep yeah. turning up. You know? Right, right. But I think, yeah. I think, I think there are loads of sporting analogies and parallels with comedy mm -hmm. but where they fall down is that if you're a sports person you're trying to win a race right. you know you're trying to land a trick or whatever it is mm -hmm. um a gymnastic trick or something but with comedy you are not trying that that is all about replicating perfection but we're not trying to replicate perfection many of us some of us are um but the rory scovels of this world are trying to create an environment in which to be differently wild and brilliant so when I did that, that set on Conan, I was trying to be loose with the material that I knew I was going to do because that was all I could. All I had control over was sort of how tight the setting was on the <laughs> to continue the sporting analogy, the spin bike. You know, you've got that tightener and I can go, OK, I could tighten this right up and robotically deliver the punchlines like a magician. Like all of my early reviews would say I was slick. I hate the word slick, but I think what they had picked up was that. I was very much guilty of, as I now see it, or uh, competent at, as you might say, uh, repeating the mistakes of last time in such a way that they don't appear to be mistakes. Or, oh, sorry, that they do appear to be mistakes, learning from things, endlessly honing and iterating, saying, leaning into the word, colouring a word in a slightly different way towards some imagined perfect rendition of this set. That's what I used to do all the time. Now... I choose to try and be as loose as possible so that the, you, there can be genuine discoveries. And I am very proud to say that the two punchlines I finished with in that Conan set, I had never said anywhere before. <laughs> I um, I was given one of them by the Sklar brothers the day before. The lovely oh, Sklar they're great. Brothers. Yeah. They gave me a great, they saw me do a warm up set in um, uh, a club in LA, Flappers, uh, mm -hmm. the lovely Flappers. And, um, they gave me a tag and I went, oh, that's great. But the reason that doesn't work is because this and I kind of tweaked what they said and that made them laugh. And they said, you should say both. And I was like, oh, God, that's a good point. And then I told <laughs> JP, who's the Conan Booker, who kind of is the, the sort of um, uh, helps you produce your set and gave me such wonderful. We don't 
as far as I know, we don't have a job that's an equivalent to that in the UK. I've never had a person who booked me for a gig say, I've seen all comedy and I think you should do this and this with such finesse and such deftness as JP did. So I said, look, the scars, the scars gave me this tag and then I put this on it. And he was like, no, you know, you should say that afterwards. I was like, I'm doing it. I've never said any of these things on stage. Certainly not in America. I'm just going to I just believe in them because they're funny. And so the last two big punchlines of that Conan set I had never said before in front of an audience oh, and wow. that that feels mad right that's insane yeah i had a lot of confidence in them so that's some risk but, that you got yeah, to but bring it felt to like it risk. <laughs> and i tell you what i had a twinkle in my eye throughout the whole set because i knew i was going to take a big risk at the end right and i think the twinkle really helped yeah i agree yeah i love that i love that story and i also love the sklar brothers as well so i think I wonder if the reason things they're bookers and producers for the comics here is that way because so many comics went on uh, a talk show like Johnny Carson again and again, and then after a while they stopped having a material <laughs> because of- <laughs> yeah, well maybe maybe, and I don't listen. I, I've no idea because that's the only show I've done in the states. Right? Okay. Um, okay. I I don't have experience of other bookers. I can't I imagine see. they're anything like as good as JP. I mean, he really was like a kind of director slash assistant slash like he was kind of uh-huh. he was both above and below me. It was such a deft touch. It was it was fabulous working mm. with him. You come away going, oh, could you just direct my career, please? Because you know when I'm funniest and you know when I'm cheating to do something i think is funny but i know in my heart of hearts isn't the best oh, really thing, you know? just, yeah if it's the person i'm thinking of he has been at that for a while he's been, um, well it'll be him then. he's been at that for a while yeah yeah i just heard i remember hearing that when jay leno went on uh, the tonight show with johnny carson a couple of times he had his a material and he killed and then they brought him back a couple more times and it, it he didn't he, he had kind of already gone through his a material and he yeah, was doing okay. his b material and he wasn't doing as well and then he stopped getting booked for a little bit uh, sure. on there because of that and i wonder if that's like that sort of thing is the impetus for why so many people got really uh tight with that but it's great that there's somebody out there who is trying to stay true to who that comic is like yes. jp Yes, I well, I agree. That's that's absolutely how I felt about it. I felt like here is someone who wants me to be the best I can be for me, rather than someone who I mean, and and he wants that to chime. He wants that to be in in parallel with the best I can be for the show. But I didn't feel like I was being kind of I was having anything trimmed off so that I would fit. Do you know what I mean? He, it oh was, yeah. So I would fit the the Conan set shaped gap. He wasn't like you have to trim this and trim this so you fit. It was like you are you seem to me to be at your funniest when you lean into that and i'm like oh my god you're right yeah so they're very very a very positive experience you started in performance i guess at a pretty young age i mean you mentioned that you were 16 when you did that nine months at the circus school was your desire at that time to do performing uh, like do performance art or were you already interested in comedy at that point and this was an avenue for that I was interested in comedy. I never thought that I could do it. So I wanted to be an actor without really knowing why or understand. I mean, I still sort of do. I'm a kind of capable actor, which means I don't get any work, but I don't seek any anymore. You know, um, I, I wanted to be an actor probably because I secretly wanted to be a comedian, but was scared. I'm a people pleaser. And the idea of being heckled 
was terrifying to me on a kind of soul level. So I, um, I think I put off starting comedy for about 12 years longer than I should have. Um, I, I don't know how possible it seemed, but then I was, I, I was, I wanted to be an actor, but the route I took to be an actor was to go to circus school, not drama school. So it, there was definitely something perverse about it. I, I think my biggest thing was don't be normal. Don't be a normal person. I was just had this incredibly middle of the road schooling and, and the place I grew up just seemed really average and really usual. Average isn't fair, usual. And I wanted to be unusual. And I felt like there's another world out there whereby you don't have to get a real job. And then I discovered pre-circus school, actually. Circus school was when I was uh, 18. Um, when I was about 16, I did a, I saw a street show, like a carny trick. Me and my best buddy saw a, a street show and we went, um, oh, that guy's walking on broken glass. I think I know how to, I think I know how he's doing that. And then we went and practiced it at home and we did it without cutting ourselves to ribbons. And then, um, and then we had this sort of inkling, this very nascent feeling of like, oh, you, oh, you can. We went and did a street show just just when we were 16 years old and and we made some money and we went, oh, you can get money from gigging. But it didn't turn into stand up for a very long time. And that was through fear. Mm, that's interesting. I want to talk a little bit about your acting and television experience. You were on a couple of series in the UK. And you also appeared as yourself on a lot of comedy shows because you did some of the comedy competition shows there, like Show Me the Funny, which came oh, yeah. over here recently. Um, oh, did it? Yeah, there's a Show Me the Funny that Keenan Thompson from SNL is kind of like oh. the spearhead of, I guess, or the, the, the main okay. focal point on that. And I think they've only done one season here. Okay, we only did one season. It was not a huge success of a show. It got kind of, you know, the first couple of shows I think were were decent, you know, decent numbers. And then probably the finale did okay, but I don't think it was a successful show and I certainly found it very frustrating and problematic as a as an experience. I do think now if I had seen like, you know, 10 seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race as I now have, I would have known how to play that experience or more likely I would have gone, ah, oh, this won't be for me. I think, <laughs> I think it was, it, it was pitched to us as, uh, what's the master chef. Do you have master chef? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like a kind of, well, our one certainly is a kind of highbrow, uh, people who are really into passionate about cooking and it's a kind of, it has a masterclass element to it and they're placed in challenging situations and so on. I thought it was going to be like that, like a kind of highbrow, comedians in extremists having to you know work to create a comedy i was like oh that's so scary and as soon as i was scared of it i was like i've got to do this then so i've got to I've got to at least try and then it turned out to be something that was very much more like a reality tv you know in like and and i i, I don't i suppose now that i'm such a fan of rupaul's drag race i understand the benefits of that sort of approach but i would imagine that the stress that you're under in those kind of shows as, as we were at the time, is that they would say, right, on, on Monday, we put you in a new environment. And then on Wednesday night, you are going to deliver seven minutes of brand new material that you have written in the last however long since Monday morning to a completely unusual audience. So we were in a school. So we would mingle with the school children and then we would perform to the school children. We were in uh, an army barracks and we would train with the army for two days and then we would perform material about the army to the army. That's terrifying, right? Yeah. 
And and of course, you're not just performing it to the army, you're performing it on TV to however many millions of people are watching. Now, obviously, Last Comic is a bit like that these days. Mm -hmm. But we weren't given any time to sit and write the stuff because we were too busy getting out of a taxi seven times so they can get the angle of the shot right. And it was like, are you nuts? And they kept interviewing us, doing these fake interviews about like, oh, you must be really worried about so-and-so other contestant. And I'm like, no, I'm just worried about you interviewing me because I have jokes to write. You have no idea of the stress I'm under. So I, I think it's fair to say that I did not personally get along with that experience very well. Right. Some people thrived. I, I didn't. It, it mm. didn't seem to me... I think if I had the confidence in myself and the knowledge of what's good about my comedy then that I have now, I either wouldn't have applied for the show or when it became apparent what it was, I'd have gone, no, it's not for me, thanks. Mm. I uh, I have that same sort of opinion of a lot of the reality shows simply because it a, a lot of it does seem manufactured, like you're saying. You know, like, oh, completely. It's it's yeah. like the thing I was saying about, about sport they're trying to treat comedy like sport when it isn't. None mm -hmm, of the judges, mm -hmm. none of the judges on these sorts of shows ever say that bit bombed, but you took a really heroic risk and you did it with integrity, and so you win this week. <laughs> no right. one says that, but that's right. what we should be saying to comics. Right. I mean, one of the like you mentioned earlier, one of the main areas where the analogy falls apart is that you're not trying to score points. Or you yeah. don't truly score points in comedy. I mean, no. there's no scoreboard. No. No, there's the illusion of a scoreboard because you may get a Netflix special or right. know, two million subscribers or followers on something that feels like it represents how good you are at the at the at the art. Of right. course, it doesn't. There's no relationship whatsoever. <laughs> Some of my right. favorite comics have got less than a thousand followers on something, but they're still right. my favorites because right. it, it's you know we we've kind of imprint upon it this in the same way when you were a newer comic, in the same way that there appears to be progression on the comedy circuit. I'm working unpaid. Now I'm getting what well, you have in the, in the States. You have, I can't remember your system. You have like a, uh, a an MC, then a feature, then a headliner, something like that. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a different but similarly balmy system. You, mm -hmm. you go, you move up the ranks and then you feel like, oh, next it will be a huge TV break or a big TV career. And of course that isn't necessarily how it works. It's the illusion of progression. I think in a similar way, there is the illusion of the illusion of it, it all making sense somehow or that there there is a score or that there are points or that you can win your career or you know and i know that that the desire to believe in that um and the desire to win it fuels a lot of people and it probably probably a lot of people benefit from it i'm not a kind of winning mentality type person i i i, I don't think it's that important to me to win so i've never done those things of like the equivalent would be, again, going back to sport, it'd be like some people get up at 5 a.m. and train because they've got to win. Oh, it's not about that for me. I want to have fun. So there's no there's no measurement. You don't kind of go, oh, this guy had the funnest career. <laughs> you know, this guy we've never heard of, who never won any awards, who has no public profile. I'm not talking about myself. I've won a few meaningless awards. Um, but, you know, we never you never hear people go, this was the best comic because he had the best fun. You know, so, right. yeah. It's it's all meaningless and and meaningless and seductive at the same time. It's the seductive like, hey, believe in it, believe there's a system because these right. people who are producers who have uh, proper careers, who have pensions, you know, and uh, you call them a four hundred one k. I know from watching Archer, you know, <laughs> like you, there there are people, there are industry people. There's the artists and the industry people, and the industry people don't need you personally. They just need some artists. And so they 
I don't, and there's nothing bad about that. You know, I'm a producer in my own right of certain things, but it, 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 all it does is contribute to the illusion that you can somehow win and or be better. And it's meaningless. As, uh, as one of my all time comedy heroes uh, says, a comedian, Simon Munnery, a British comedian, he says, it's not a race, it's a dance. And that to me is that that's the heart of the matter. You can't win a dance. We're just dancing. You dance, you enjoy dancing, and then you stop, and then one day you die. Great. I love that. I love that's where your head's at with that. That's very much how I feel. I I think so many people, especially here, I mean, I can't speak for other countries, but here the attitude very much is, oh, you'll never make it. Like, that's what people will say. You'll never make it. And they yeah. are saying, you're not going to be as big as Kevin Hart or something, but you can make it and not be that big. I mean, there are people who are making a living. They are taking care of themselves off of yep. their chosen profession who aren't yep. rich and famous. And that's totally. fine. Totally. And listen, it's it's that seductive. It's another seductive thing, isn't it? You can feel like, oh, anyone that I used to feel like this. I used to really struggle with perfectionism. It made me terribly unhappy. I was having a bad life experience because of this perfectionism going, oh, I, I can't get enough. I can't be good enough. I want more stuff. I want more respect. I want more opportunities. I want, you know, those kind of things. The seductive quality is that you, I thought to myself then, if I stop trying to be the best, then I'll be a loser. And and then I would have helpful advice that said, no, dare to be average. Just try and have an enjoyable career and that you you might make better work if you stop striving and needing it so much. And, you know, desire, desire the things you desire. Don't need them. Um, and and then you then there's the other little niggling voice that says, no, but that's what losers would say. <laughs> now, I just got to a point in my life where I realized there were certain key role models of mine of whom I was desperately jealous because they had family lives that I wanted and relationships that I wanted, but I despised them because the little niggling voice in my head would say, no, but they're losers. They're not trying hard enough. They're not famous enough. And I was like, what? These happy people who I want to be like, I somehow on some level, I consider them losers because as if there's such a thing as a loser, you know, but I, I consider them losers because they don't have the trappings of success that I want. I just, I just realized that and I stood back from it and I went, oh, this is a recipe for a desperately unhappy life. So I had to, you know, break out of that. And, and, you know, I'm sure there are very successful people who, if they bother to listen to this episode and me talking like this, will think, oh, that guy, you know, he's had to, he's had to think like that because he didn't win. Well, yeah, there may be an element of truth in that, but here we are, <laughs> you know. So I do think I have met lots of very successful people who aren't happy. Look at fame. I know so many unhappy famous people who hate being famous. Imagine working your whole life to get famous and then you hate it. That'd be awful. Yeah. Waste. Oh, gosh, yeah. And I think that's one of the things, too. I mean, it's. I mean, going back to the sports analogy, <laughs> I think... I love that we've set up the sports analogy. We're, gonna work, just talk, we're, we're hitting it again and again. It's meaningless sports analogy that doesn't work. Let's go back to that for a second. But where I do see a parallel is so many people who talk about sports, they'll say, like, is this player one of the greatest of all time? Well, no, because they didn't win a championship. Sure. And it, it's like they totally overlook anything they were capable of they're overlooking skill. They're overlooking other successes they had because they didn't yeah. have a ring. They weren't good or they sure. weren't the greatest, which is absurd. You know, like you don't yeah. have to have this one thing that 
not that many people are going to get. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, like if you you look at it that way, there's so many different teams in the NBA, but not all of them are going to win, and only one team can win a year. So yep. most, the vast majority of people are not going to get that. Yes. So, but that doesn't mean they're not millionaires. That doesn't mean that they're not working on a professional sure. level in something that's insanely hard to work on a professional level there's, in. There's a little, there's a little trick that I uh, play on myself, which I really recommend to comedians who are not any, to any comedian who is not the single most successful comedian of all time. And that's almost all of us. Um, I really recommend this It's a little thought experiment. Think to yourself, no other comedians in the world exist. And you alone have realized that you can go to certain venues and bars and clubs and tell funny stories that you thought of and make people laugh and people pay you. <laughs> Isn't that success? Imagine if no, imagine if like just delete the concept of envy and you know what other people have and just think, imagine if I was like a welder or a plumber and I just discovered, oh, I could just say funny stories and people think I'm really funny and I can walk into venues of different sizes full of people all over the world and they will i just turn up and go i'm going to say these things now and they're like we love those things have some money you'd feel incredible you'd be like, oh my god i've cracked it so the idea is now you fill back in oh everyone exists oh now you have to feel bad because you don't know what <laughs> right. other people have oh, what's the point of that that's a really brilliant way to put it i like that a lot because it does get to the heart of it that it's really about envy and it's not about what you are accomplishing yeah and so why yeah. even bother if it's not about what you are accomplishing and what you are doing, what you can control, why yeah. does it matter? I've heard a comment. And anyone, anyone is, is who is successful enough that they are like everyone, any successful comic, whoever you want to name wants to be at the next level. Mm -hmm. They want to be doing bigger clubs. They want to be doing bigger movies. They mm -hmm. want to get paid more money from Netflix. They mm -hmm. want to be doing whatever the space. There's no limit to it. So the only ones of them that are happy have learned to be happy with themselves and their output. You know, Pete right. Holmes, he's not the most famous or rich comic in the world, but God, he loves it. He loves the craft and he loves the, he loves the journey. That's just so inspiring, you know? So I, I want to be one of those kind of comics who goes, anyone who is successful and who is happy realizes that they are not happy because of their success. Yeah. I remember watching and this is old, so I don't know if this is going to track at all, but a long time ago, back when that movie wedding crashers with Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson came out, they went on tour. They did a comedy tour and they brought some stand up comics along like Ahmed Ahmed. And one particular guy on there was talking, it's sort of a documentary and he was saying something about how because of the things he had done he should be headlining shows by now like that and and mm -hmm. it was this mentality of because he's an la comic who who kind of went through the system and probably took uh, the classes on how to write and all that kind of stuff and so he heard all of these uh, maybe like snake oil salesman type people who are in the industry yeah. Yeah. Uh, who said like if you do this this and this then you will get this and mm -hmm. that's just not how it works all the time, mm -hmm. you know, and, yeah. and it, 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 there is no, as you were mentioning earlier, no specific way to get to that end uh, position. Uh, yes. And, and there's so many in yes, positions. Yes, because, 
because the the name of the game in comedy is do a new thing that no one else has done before. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, that's, right. that's one of them. Ah, how will I teach you how to do that? Well, you can't tell people what the thing is. Right. And any attempt to tell people what your thing is, is you're just going to tell them what your thing is. Certainly, I could teach someone how to make themselves a bit more like me. Why would I bother doing that? You know, what, what, I think the only way that you can help other creative people, comics or whatever, is to just try and help them get out of their own way. You know, try and it, it's kind of it's macro stuff. It's kind of meta stuff rather than saying right. you should write a joke like this, that or the other. And again, I mean, I mentor some newer comics and I always disclaim it by saying, look, here's a disclaimer. I'm not rich or famous, <laughs> you know, but I love comedy. I love it. And I love doing it. and I love talking about it. And maybe I've got some insights you haven't heard before. But geez, go, you know, go and uh, geez. That's so funny. I'm talking to an American. So I said, geez, how patronizing. <laughs> I never normally use that expression. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, when I said apartment earlier, I was like, don't say flat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I okay. wouldn't have noticed. I wouldn't have noticed. Um, so I... I think that the only real help you can get, it's so easy to talk to another comic, especially if like me, you are uh, given to offering people uh, jokes that uh, in an unsolicited way, here's a tag, <laughs> not like in the lovely way this class did, but just to people you don't know going, hey buddy, here's a thing I thought of. You know, it, it's so easy to tell people what you think their comedy should be like. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to help people make their comedy more like what they're like. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that, I, the improv theater, the improv theater that I'm at here in New York, The Magnet, I love that theater because of that reason. That's the approach that they take. They don't say, here's how you do comedy uh, and just do it this way. They say, who are you as an improviser and let's help you be more of that. Yeah. Let's let's help let's get improv to work for you as opposed to you work for improv comedy. Yeah, totally. Because you've got, you know, you've got Stephen Wright and then you've got all the people who tried to be like Stephen Wright. Yes. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're not as good and it didn't add anything to the art or the industry or anything. You know, that that they spent a long time trying to be them or whoever, you know, insert name of comic here. There's the person who does the thing because they made some discoveries and took some risks and and traveled a particular path you want to be one of them they they only got there by not you know they weren't copying someone else so don't copy them make your own discoveries copy the thing they did which was to take risks and try and learn and try and be original but don't try and copy the person who was trying to be original yes and when it comes to your comedy what is it that you were striving for we've clearly establish that you aren't trying to chase some sort of fake dream that gets put out there. No, well, I mean, sometimes the dream is real. And look, if there, right, are, you right. know, there are people for whom the dream will work, there are people who will win the right. lottery and, and what have you. But I, I think the, the dream for me is to, um, to sort of, like one of the things I love about comedy is that it will never be finished. Like I love traveling hopefully. You know, they say it's better to travel hopefully than to arrive you know, arriving's a bit dull. As soon as I've got a bit that works really well, I kind of get bored of it. It just doesn't happen all the time. I'm not like, oh, I'm just dropping amazing bits. But I I just think that I spent a long time through street performing. I, I was a street performer for 10 years. And that was all about incorporating the learning of last time into this time and polish it and make it perfect. And and or it was it was all about like that for me. I hadn't yet realized, no, no, take it to bits, take it to bits, keep taking it to bits. So I... I suppose 
I my my inclination is always to trim and polish and hone and burnish something until it's perfect. And I need to keep remembering, no, no, you idiot. That's the opposite. Unlearn that. Unlearn that. Because the most exciting moments for any comic, as you know, are when you think of a thing whilst traveling to the gig and you say it and it gets a laugh and you go, oh, there we go. A new thing. I had a thought and it's immediately there we go. That that's the stuff. And so really. I like traveling, hopefully, continuing to learn, certain that I will never completely learn and I will never arrive. And I just enjoy the journey of it. I, my, the most fun I ever have doing stand up is when I'm in the second half of a tour show. I do a, when I tour, I do two hours um, with a break in the middle. So like an hour and then 20 minute break and then 40 to an hour. And in the first half is the show that they've paid to come and see. And then the second half, I do new material. And that's a weird way around to do it. But I really like it because I've they've relaxed and had a drink and they've had their money's worth and they've bought into, they're like, well, there we go. We had the show. Now this is extra. And then I just play and I read stuff off cards and I free fall and I try and put myself in danger. Comically speaking, I try and talk my, paint myself into corners that I then somehow got to escape. And, um, and those are the most fun moments. And brilliantly, they're often way funnier than the prepared, polished thing that was the reason I've got them into the venue. Not always, because there is genuine risk. Sometimes they flop, and that's fine too. So, so it's the it's the doing of the new stuff. And the good news there is that that's exactly what Chris Rock likes best about his career. I'm sure that's exactly what Maria Bamford likes best. Whoever is is the moment when you say a new thing you've never said before, and it works. We get to share that. All of us of whatever inverted commas level. Um, we get to drink from that same cup. We get to experience that same feeling of like, you know, maybe there's 300 people in the room, maybe there's 30,000 people, but it's the moment when you, a thing strikes you on stage and you add a bit just off the top of your head and it works and you go, Hey, you know, you're tapping into the, whatever the thing is. I should think of, I should think of an analogy for what the thing is, because it's like, you know, the great comedy is all around us or, you know, there's, there's some river underneath us or the duende or there's something like that. There's, there's some sort of thing that when you're on it, when you're flowing and when you are being your best comedy self, you are connected to this thing that is the same thing as the Marx Brothers or Mitch Hedberg or Steve Martin. We just you, we were it's like we're all praying to the same God, you know, or we're all we're all. I don't know what <laughs> we'll jump in over the same broomstick. I don't know what I'm talking about, but do you know what I mean? Like you, oh you, yeah, I feel I love that. I feel connected to the, the the infinite thing. Yes, I totally see what you're saying there, and I I love that uh, travel hopefully as opposed to just arriving. I love that sentiment too. I think that I think that one's going to stick with me for a while because uh, it's it it does put things into a a, a special perspective that I don't think people focus on as much. And and maybe a lot of the way people word it here is to say they're on a journey, but I like that phrasing of it to say, to travel hopefully. Yeah, it reminds you that the journey is the point. Right. The journey is the whole adventure. The destination isn't the adventure, because right. the destination is death. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> <in it>. You know, <laughs> when you get there, you're dead, that's dead. So, yeah. You know, it, yeah, I admit it's a, it's a bit life's a journey right um, right and you're new york and not uh la so that's some completely inappropriate thing of you but um <laughs> uh but yeah uh, yeah traveling traveling hopefully that's the 
that's the best bit, right? You're going on holiday. Way. You're in the car. It's great. You get there. You're like, oh, it's just me again. You know, but the, the traveling bit is the, that's the fun. And I wanted to talk to you about your street performing. So you were street performing. It Was it considered comedy that you were performing to you or or i the 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 funny bits were um Mm -hmm. i was a circus-ish performer i would do deliberately Mm -hmm. low skill dumb stuff i got 10 guys out the audience to do a tug of war with a rope and then i would walk along the rope and balance in the middle and eat a packet of chips Uh uh, crisps to the uk listener Um, but i would do that at which is a, a decently it's difficult um but I would be doing it because there would be such a lurch in the rope with these 10 guys all pulling it. Uh-huh. Um, I would be about an inch off the ground. <laughs> so <laughs> it would have, you know, it was, it could go wrong, but it wasn't danger, danger. It wasn't right. like I was sort of trying to, I suppose I was trying to um, undermine the idea of circus. So um, I, or the idea of an impressive trick. And I suppose I was doing that because I felt if I ever did do an impressive trick, like I was a decent juggler in my time. And if I got a big round of applause from a big juggling trick, I wouldn't really care so much about that as I would about riffing a little response to something someone said to me and that getting a big laugh. I was like, oh, that's that's better. So I designed that show. That was the second show I ever made. And I designed that show really to be absolute bullshit so that it would force me to fill in the gaps with being really funny. And that is gradually, by the time I stopped street performing, there was a bit I used to do at the beginning where I would strip to my underwear and stand on top of my suitcase in order to start getting a crowd. And then gradually, as I got a crowd, I would, you know, it was under the pretense of like, oh, I'm just going to get changed and then I'll start, you know, street performance to build a big circle crowd. You always need to, you, you can't, one of the easier options is to be doing a thing. I'm just getting ready and then I'll start. And getting ready is actually the first 15 minutes of your show. So I would, I would, do that and to begin with when i started doing that i would do you know four or five minutes worth of walk by jokes just improvised things about people who were walking past trying to impugn importune people to stop and then by the time i finished doing that show by the time i was kind of winding it up because i had enough work as a stand-up the bit of me standing on top of the case in my underwear would often last 30 minutes and then i'd quickly do the trick at the end Oh, so, fun. <laughs> so it grew and grew and grew. So yes, certainly when I started, I absolutely couldn't call myself a comedian. I remember running into a, uh-huh. um, a street performer in the Edinburgh Festival many years ago who was like, you know, a Canadian guy. And he said, so what do you do? And I said, oh, I do this kind of tightrope, you know, it's just nonsense, really. Um, and I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm a, uh, a stand-up comedian. And I was like, oh my God, on the street. That's so exciting. How do you hat that? That means like, you know, how do you get money for that at the end? What's the sort of finale? He said, um, Oh, well, I do a straitjacket escape. And I was like, oh, right. We're all stand-up comedians, mate. <laughs> do you know what I mean? If those are your if those are your parameters, you think of yourself as a comedian, but you do a straitjacket escape? No, you're an escapologist and you do some jokes <laughs> along the way. If, if you like what I got excited about was the idea that you could do a whole show that was just comedy and then make money from it, which is fiendishly hard. And there's only mm-hmm. two or three people I can think of who've ever done that. So um so the show became much more about the jokes like it honestly at the beginning mm-hmm. i would have said like I, I wouldn't have dared to say i was a stand-up comedian on the street i was just being funny loosely placed on a sort of skeleton of circus okay. by the end 
I was mostly just riffing in my underwear on, on standing on a suitcase. Um, <laughs> and there was some good, I was coming up with some good stuff. And because I was also doing stand up, there were bits from my club set that I would do on the street that I'd go, well, that could work. And then I'd build them a bit on the street and then put them back in the club set a different way around. And so, yeah, by the end, I could say, oh, I mostly do comedy, but I, I am absolutely still a, <laughs> you know, a, mm-hmm. a tightrope walker with a cunning angle. And when you started doing acting work, when you started getting acting work, what was that ser- that that experience like? Like doing a series? Oh well, the series that I did. Do you, do you mean Mission Twenty One Ten? Yes. Yeah. So that's it. So that was um, a children's series that I did. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a cross between. Now in, in the UK, I would say the Crystal Maze and Terminator. Did you ever have the Crystal Maze? I we may. I don't no. know. I don't know. Takeshi's Castle. Did you ever see that? No, some sort of some sort of um, challenge based game. Basically, the the premise was I'm a I'm a sort of cyborg living alone on some hulking sci fi set in the future. Mm -hmm. And I'm teleporting children from now 100 years into the future to help me solve a bunch of things. I mean, it wasn't really acting work. It was a sort of host. It was being a, <laughs> I see. Being okay. a, a, a cyborg presenter. And it was funny because you know, there were these huge robots on set and um, they were brilliantly made by people who made special effects for Doctor Who and stuff. But they were so towering and heavy and dangerous that the children weren't allowed anywhere near them. So, we, <laughs> you know, it was a, such an exciting, fun job to do. I've got such, so many happy memories of it. But the the gameplay quickly became like kids we've got to go over here watch out for those roboids you know watch out for the robots now hide in this alleyway and do a crossword puzzle <laughs> because you <laughs> cannot go near that thing because it will kill you if the opposite <laughs> um yeah so i mean I, I did do i did see some some rep um which is like you know repertory theater in the uk for a, but mm-hmm. not for long for a, for a couple of years and i enjoyed that but i couldn't handle sitting by the phone waiting to get a job and right then, you know there are friends of mine who did and committed to it and stuck with it and some of them quit and some of them now were in game of thrones you know some of them have had fantastic careers Mm -hmm. but i still think i made the right call because with stand-up you do make your own luck to a much greater extent plus i always think when you're i wanted to be an actor so i could kick down doors and run away from explosions and do like you know fun thrilling stuff (laughs) um not not so that i could kind of get into my own thoughts and play hamlet i see and really the thing I comforted myself with when my my friends who stuck with acting started to get really fun, exciting acting jobs, I still thought you don't get to kick down a door and run in all guns blazing. You get to do two seconds of that and then retake it and retake it and retake it. You get to pretend to be an adventurer or a time lord or a whatever, whereas I actually am a stand-up comedian. I actually am jumping out of the plane every night. So it, it I, I I stay I stand by my choice. I will look the Inquisitor in the eye on the eve of my death, and I will say, nope, I made the right decision. Yeah, that's one of the things I I was picking up on. So it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, like you get to actually be this thing as opposed to pretending to be the thing. It sounds like what you get the most out of performing is the risk element. I mean, it was in your street performing uh, just yeah. street performing on its own takes a little bravery and there's a risk to it. And then you were sort of, I know you're saying it wasn't high risk because you weren't tightrope walking on something that was like sure. several yards high or something, but you were, you were taking some risks there and that that's not really there and acting in the same way, unless it's live theater. But if it's a, something that's being filmed, you're yeah, doing take I, I after think take. Probably- I think there must be an equivalent. If you are a proper actor, 
if you're Sir Ian McKellen, then maybe every line you say is a risk and everything is a, hmm. you know, you, you take, look at Nicolas Cage. God, his acting's full of risk. You know, imagine being <laughs> yeah. Nicolas Cage and turning up day one and going, right, what I'm going to do with this role is, you know, the director's <laughs> like, sure thing, Nick, go for it. And, you know, so I think, but it is an extreme example, but I'm sure in a kind of micro transactional way, I'm sure there are much smaller risks of dignity and risks, leaps of faith that you make creatively. And and also I'm wary of, I love talking about risk and I love having discovered that it's the, the thing I most enjoy, I suppose. But equally, I'm very wary of, I think comics in general and myself in particular, I tend to, I don't know if archetypalize is a word, but what I like to do is, is come up with an idea and then apply it to everything and mythologize, mythologize. I like to mythologize everything, other comics and myself. So it's very easy for me to sit here and go, oh, yes, the risk is the most important thing. That's what really uh, excites me about. And then you might see my set and go, this guy's just a stand up comedian. Sure. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wary of kind of trying to sort of uh, mythologize myself because that's again that's a, that's a temptation i think oh, yeah. that yeah. i i am drawn to those things but i'm also scared risk is terrifying mm-hmm. and there are numerous circumstances i mean got a million gigs i can think of where i could have taken more risks i could have there's just the thing that's the thing i aspire to it's the thing i most enjoy and it's the thing that i find hardest maybe that's it I talk about risk so much, not because I'm this big risky guy. I'm not some, you know, uh, you know, we can all think of comics who genuinely like those guys, Terry Alderton, Phil Kay. There's another guy, um, there's an American guy in the UK, Russell Hicks, brilliant risky comic, tries to never say the same thing twice. Fantastic. I'm not one of those guys, but I suppose it's because I fear it so much that I'm fascinated with it. So I really want to keep tunneling into it. I'm just letting all that sink in. I love that. <laughs> No, well, that's I just great. think it's it's so easy to sit on a podcast and to sit on and within a podcast and go, well, of course I'm like this, and that's very <laughs> that's very seductive. Again, you know, I want to be like, well, the thing about me, Jason, is I've always blah blah blah. <laughs> but really, we're all just fucking idiots, aren't we? We're all just idiots trying to kind of get. We, I just we each we get a little thread and we go, oh, I'm just going to follow this. I'm just going to pursue this and see if it leads to glory. No, not that one. Try this one. Try this one. So I, I'm trying to kind of. <laughs> walk walk back a little bit to humility and say the risk is what fascinates me i don't claim to be any kind of an expert on it and because of the lockdown i've done an awful lot more talking about comedy than i've done comedy <laughs> right. i'm in danger of disappearing on my own ass but um <laughs> you you have that expression right because if you don't that's going to be awkward <laughs> we i get it but i've never heard it before oh fine okay and um, navel gazing you know sort of disappearing <laughs> into the 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 in, into one's fundament right i want to talk your podcast you've you've had the comedian's comedian running for eight years what made you want to start it um combination of factors i did lots of training in different places but never for stand-up and then mm-hmm. years later i realized oh this is my job and no one's ever taught me how to do it so i wanted people to teach me how to do it so i thought i'd talk to other comics and say how do you how do you do it so that was that was part of it and then the other Same part reason why i started this podcast yeah totally totally i mean i i thought every comic thought about comedy the way i do I now realize that I'm obsessively analytical about it. Didn't know that. I thought everyone did. I thought every comic was there going, wow, that's brilliant. Look what he's done. He's paused at that section. Oh, look how she's taken that risk and, and kind of nested it within that. Region. I thought everyone was doing that. Some of us are, but I really was doing it a lot. <laughs> so it's an outlet for that. 
and um and also partly because of show me the funny we were interviewed many times not badly we were interviewed appropriately for a reality tv show but we weren't asked anything that i thought we'd be asked about our creativity and where it came from and how we employed it how it manifested and what it cost us those kind of questions no one was asking those questions so i did oh that's interesting that's great so you've had that running eight years and what have you learned over time about how to set up a podcast as far as maybe the mechanics like a little off air we were talking a little about you know recording and and uh, your mic and things like that so what sort of things did you learn to do to to have a really professional go at it you've taken the wind out of my pompous sails in a beautiful way there because when you started asking the question you've been doing this for eight years um it's like over 300 nearly 350 episodes now um and when you when you started the sentence so what have you learned i was all i was about to do something fun i was about to go nothing it's taught me nothing about comedy it's just taught me that you can overstudy comedy but that's not the question you asked so i didn't get to do my funny oh um, i'm sorry no that's fine <laughs> what, have, what have i learned about podcasting i mean probably very little as well i you know who knows what it is it's completely different now to when i started um every it's so hard to get your show noticed um i'm very lucky to have got in early enough to have a sort of small core audience um i think that in terms of interviewing people i like to try and i like to do loads of research because i think a it flatters people and b my most enjoyable moments of the interviews i do are always when i kind of contradict someone's self-image but in a polite way, if someone goes, well, I'm like this. And I can go, well, you say that. But I noticed on this beat of that show from five years ago, you actually did something that's the opposite of that. And then they go, oh, you're, God, I suppose you're right. So I think the sentence, I suppose you're right, is one of the most satisfying ones in my podcasting is when someone goes, God, yeah, I never really thought about it like that. And you go, yeah, because what we're talking about is you and you never thought about it like that. Great. That's that's really satisfying for me. Yeah, that's I love that. I don't. I've only gotten the like, oh, that's a good question, but I don't know. I I don't know that I. I mean, I'm I'm not only just American. I'm from the South, and there's a politeness that gets in the way sometimes. <laughs> I've noticed this <laughs> yeah, sure. on and off well, stage. You, I listen. I do a lot of listening, <laughs> and I try to work out what I would be worried about if I was that person. I try to weaponize my own anxiety. Okay. In the service, in the service of podcasting. That's so very interesting. I think to myself. I think to myself, if I was this big headliner who I'm interviewing, you know, what would, what would worry me? Would I be looking at, I've just dropped three Netflix specials. Would I be thinking, Oh, is everyone, what do they really think of me? You know, would I feel remote? You know, so I, I try to ask questions. I try to get at what's worrying my guests, I suppose. Oh, that's say, really good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm learning Again, not, something not deliberately. Here. That's, that's me after. Oh, of course. Going, oh, I suppose I do do that. But, I see. Um, I see. It wasn't, it wasn't a manifesto so much as me going, <laughs> Oh, I think I've been doing that. I see. Yeah, when I ask questions, I I think my big thing is, and this started from when I was interviewing people when I was uh, at a radio station, and I was interviewing people who were doing press junkets. I didn't want to ask them. I didn't want to be one of those interviewers who was just asking them the same questions that everyone else is asking. Well, but exactly. I didn't. Right. But I also didn't want to do the shock jock thing where I'm. I'm surprising them because I'm being so rude. Uh, so yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I was yeah, trying we to. Don't, we don't really have those. We just have in the UK. We just have the kind of bland. 
radio, not all of them, but a lot of interviews where you are being interviewed badly by someone who hasn't even bothered reading a piece of paper about you. Right. So I wanted to do the opposite of that. We don't really have shock jocks, but I know what they are because mm -hmm. I've heard material from David Cross and Patton Oswalt. I've heard everyone's routines about those kind of, you know, Dougie and the bear. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. I've, I've, yeah. Had, I've had to do mercifully few of those interviews. I've done one or two. Yeah, I don't I don't like that style and I mean I love Stern, but Stern is different now than when he started out and uh all these people are still probably trying to copy nineteen eighty eight Howard Stern. But <laughs> nevertheless, um I I like delving into things the way you're talking about and uh that's a deeper way to do it, to think, okay, if I were in their shoes, this is what I'd be going through. Um I try to, as I said, ask them questions that hopefully they haven't been asked before. And I also like to, I like the, I, I, I know a lot of people blanch at the term, pick their brain, but I mean, that's essentially what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure out mm -hmm. where they're coming from and, and who they are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to let politeness get in the way of, of really finding out something and getting to that moment of, I suppose yeah. you're right. Yeah. And I've let that happen far too much. <laughs> <laughs> where have where does the podcast go from here for you? I, I well, are you doing I, a bit of a hiatus right now or I uh, yeah, I'm I'm having a small break for the first time in about 3 years. Um mm -hmm. I am kind of partly pandemic related, although to be honest, we're doing this over Skype without seeing each other's faces mm -hmm. and I'm I'm thinking oh maybe this is the way to go because I normally I love being in the room with people. Me too, Zoom yeah. is such a kind of you're seeing a rubbish version of them whereas actually just doing this on audio I'm finding I'm feeling a bit more expressive because I'm sort of lost in my own thoughts a bit more mm. rather than worrying about how I look on a Zoom call, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, like, can this person tell if my eyeline is wavered? Mm. Um, so I, I'm going to start doing uh, more of those. Uh, they're coming back in September. Um, I suppose here's a thing from one comedy podcaster to another, or podcaster of comics. I know we're both comics, but mm. I, I think – you will feel some things in common with what I feel about like, oh, wow, I'm the only guy in comedy who's made a podcast that isn't funny. This doesn't advertise my comedy chops at all. I know, right? This was a tactical misstep. Um, but I suppose I worry that the show has plateaued a little. I worry that um, now that podcasting is sort of the cat is out of the bag, every radio station and some TV channels have realized that they've got all this content and it's insane not to podcast it for free. So there's suddenly it's impossible to get in the charts anymore because not, not that who knows if that made a difference, but it's something nice to shout about if you're in the top 10, very hard to do that now that every single radio station is just chopping up their content and podcasting right. it. Right. And of course, why, why wouldn't they, you know, every oh, yeah. brand, every person with any kind of profile should be podcasting. It's mad yeah. not to. Yeah. So as the space, apparently decreases of course spotify and and people of their ilk are gambling on the space increasing and and widening further mm -hmm. because still people don't listen to podcasts so there's right. still room for imagine if as many people didn't have a tv as don't listen to podcasts there's room right. for a lot more growth there i would guess absolutely and so i'm sort of aware of that i kind of want to change i suppose it could do with a bit of a freshen up but at the same time because my show, like you know, the, the, our shows are not too dissimilar from one another based on what we've talked about now. Um, 
in in kind of in intention certainly i think it is an opportunity to meet a person so i could format it and come up with formats for it but i don't really feel the need to do that i like just having a freewheeling thing and trying to get to the nitty-gritty of who someone is and what they're struggling with and all, all those kind of things um so I've, I've revealed my hand there who they are and what they're struggling with and how the fuck they cope with it that's what i'm after um so so i don't really have plans to kind of change the, the format at all i think that one of the things i think as it gets harder and harder to get hold of big famous guests something i'm considering doing is forgetting about big famous guests and focusing in on championing newer people that i'm excited by and that seems antithetical to growing the podcast but i don't know that i need it it's that thing i don't need to be number one it it's i i think i've leveraged my show to uh to make a decent to make an amount of money appropriate for how much time i spend on it um, it's not enormous, but I do quite well out of it, I guess. I mean, who knows? <laughs> we we never tell each other what we make. Why would we? Um, but I, <laughs> I, I feel like it. It, it is. It's making some money. It certainly paid my rent during the pandemic, and that's great. Um, so, again, I suppose it comes back to what I said before. I don't. I'm, if I'm traveling, hopefully, then rather than getting, you know, pulling all the stops out to try and get another huge guest. I'm much more interested in talking to people that people who I'm excited about. I'm more excited about those people and they have fewer blocks in the way. They're a bit more ready to reveal all because they don't have so much on the line. So yeah. Why, why keep aiming for, I've got to get Seinfeld on the show. You know, I've had some few names. I've had Patton. I've had Bill Burr. I've had Jimmy Carr. I've had Russell Brand, you know, pretty sizable acts. They haven't always been my favorite episodes. Patton certainly was. Um, but they really some of my favorite ones have been with ones where they really opened up. So it's kind of about a richness rather than kind of star quality. And that also, if I if I pursue that, that that conveniently lets me off the hook for my crippling anxiety when I feel like I haven't done enough research for a huge profile guest. And that will ruin my week. And you only get so many weeks. Right. Right. So you only get so many. Yeah, right. You only like there's two solutions. There is aim not aim lower but aim differently um and don't worry so much or there is cure the anxiety i'd much rather do the second one i would much rather do the second one just get rid of that eggy feeling when you're like oh god comedian x is coming up and he's written three books and i've got to read at least one of them and i just don't have the time i've got kids what am i gonna do it he's gonna know all this weird compulsive anxiety about the idea that in have you in your nearly 200 episodes i think yeah. 200 ish. Have you ever had a guest turn around on you and say, You're a bad podcaster. You haven't done enough research. I'm insulted. Has that ever happened? No. No, it's never happened to me, but I'm terrified of it. Oh, I'm, <laughs> now I'm, I'm I am. Weirdly, yeah, good. <laughs> I'm weirdly anxiously terrified of that sort of thing happening. And it's an element of my life and personality I would love to get rid of. But I just have this kind of hyper vigilant you know, tense, oh God, I've got, I've got this thing coming up. Oh God, you know, which is just meaningless and nonsense. If it, if it went really badly, I could simply not release the episode. I'm holding all the cards and yet I'm right, still right. kind of wobbly and, and anxious about it. So I'd love to resolve that. That would be, that would be the best thing that could happen to my podcast and life. 
is if I could resolve that somehow. I am really encouraged by you saying that you're looking for a richness as opposed to getting the next big guest because I am in a phase where I'm like, oh, I want to get some bigger names. That's why I reached out to you. And and it's great when I get them, but I do want to have rich conversations more than anything else. So hearing you say that gives me, I think, some some a lot of leeway and a well, lot of encouragement to do the same. Well, good, good, because I, I I hope if this if the sort of the broad theme of what we've been talking about is is anything sort of more anything specific, I think it's about if we're talking about traveling, hopefully, and we're talking about richness of experience, and we're talking about winning not being a thing. I did a personality test of some sort. There was a listener of the show actually years ago was um, coaching, learning to be an NLP coach, a neuro-linguistic programming coach. And he said, do you want some free sessions? I love the podcast. I'd love to meet you. And I think I know what I'm doing. Can I do a bit of free NLP on you? And I was like, sure. That sounds like there could be no negative consequences of that. And I met this guy, lovely guy. And um, he, uh, he did a personality test questionnaire on me that you would do if you were, not at school, but if you were kind of within an industry and sort of a bit rootless and not not sure what I do next. And the results floored me because the results said my desire for community is huge. My desire for creativity is huge. My desire to be famous and successful, very low. And I, and I kind of looked at these results on the results. They were really interesting questions, things like they were all oppositions, but not proper oppositions. Things like, is it more important to you to paint a fence or pat a dog? Stuff like that. You know, stuff that you're like, what? Um, <laughs> yeah. Stuff that didn't apparently make sense and it hoped to kind of wrong foot you and get the truth. And it said, so you're into creativity, you're into community, but you don't care about stardom. And I was like, well, this test's obviously bollocks. It's incredibly important to me to be fay. Oh, oh, it's sort of not, is it? It's sort of not important. Oh, and that was a real, genuine, unexpected perspective shift, a paradigm shift. So I suppose that's what I'm interested in pursuing. For, For someone who works in an industry, frothing over and obsessed with fame, and the pursuit of winning. I hope that in some way my podcast, and it's kind of, you know, kind of influential among newer comics in the UK. And now, pleasingly, some quite decent profile comics grew up on it because it's been around for so long. And I hope that in some way it is sort of an antidote to the desire for success and winning. And it can sort of help people go, no, no, no. You know, <laughs> what's that thing on wear sunscreen? The race is long. And in the end, it's only ever with yourself. So very few people bother to say that to you in comedy. So I hope I'm one of them. I can't tell you how much I love that. Such great nuggets of wisdom in that. And I appreciate you sharing it. Great nuggets is my drag name, baby. (laughs) (laughs) And tell me about Infinite Sofa. So I'm doing this thing on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Stu Goldsmith, which is I was very confused by Twitch previously, but it's basically YouTube with better uh, integrated monetization and way better integrated chat so there's a chat stream which is really part of the show and i'm doing a thing called the the infinite sofa we have 12 members of the public in a zoom room me and three comedian guests but doing interviews not sets and we do loads of mega interactive games like there's a thing whereby people can donate to support the show throughout the show and halfway through the biggest donor gets teleported into the show so they join us in the zoom room so it's like you're watching a tv chat show like the graham norton show or whatever and mm-hmm. you can suddenly be a part of it. So there's loads of really fun kind of interactive, improvisy games 
where I suddenly spring creative challenges on the people in the room and the people who are watching at home. And I mean, we're all at home, but uh, you know, the people <laughs> are in the room and the people who aren't. And it's just, I'm so in love with it. We, re- I really want to grow it into being a thing like the podcast where it's just five years from now. It's just my thing I do every Monday night in my cellar and it's my own talk show. And that really speaks to my kind of excitement about just do the thing anyway. Like, don't worry about being successful at the thing. Just do the thing because then you get the experience of doing the thing. So now I have my own talk show and their fans, they are small in number, but incredibly into it. I'm worried they're all going to get tattoos. (laughs) I love that. I love that so much. Thanks for sharing that with me. Well, we've reached the end of the podcast. Let's create something together. There'll be some banging in the background because of the (laughs) uh, work being done in the apartment above me that I might move into. Who knows? Nevertheless, uh, what is something we can create here based on what we're talking about? It seems like a lot of what we're touching on is not chasing fame and, and finding who we really are as artists maybe um but i don't really know how to demonstrate that and i don't know if there's maybe a a comedic exercise we could go through to try to demonstrate something we've been talking about do you have any ideas anything jumping out at you god well i was wondering we could try and create a meme that could be placed on uh you know you get memes with like you know uh all of the things in the world you know what i mean those like (laughs) a a thought we could try and come up with a funny thought that could be placed over a a photo there could be some text over a photo of water or something like that something that like you know, something, God, imagine if we could come up with something as good as it's not a race, it's a dance. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think do, that's, yeah. that's a tall order. <laughs> no, no, let's let's create that. Um, so it's the idea is that it's something uh, uh, over a picture of, you know, like you said, it, the ocean or <laughs> a river or yeah, something. Yeah, but specifically like aimed at comedians. Like a picture, uh, maybe the picture is of an audience, maybe okay. an angry audience. Okay, oh, okay. <laughs> or, or the Ooh. pictures of a rival comedian, someone else's new Netflix thing, something that you can see it and feel inspired by it rather than like you want to kill yourself. Okay. What if it's an angry audience? Maybe it's it's not about making them happy. It's about making you happy. <laughs> I don't know. Something like that or something like it's an angry audience except – it's something like the audience is you man <laughs> the, the audience the audience we're all like i love the idea all of those that lovely bill hicks thing about um uh you know we're all one consciousness experience experiencing itself i wonder yeah. if there is a like we're all one audience applauding itself or we're all one audience <laughs> laughing at itself or what about uh, like how you sometimes when the audience gets angry when the when they don't like a joke and i'm like i didn't like it either if i'm being honest so like we're all we're all in the same place here but i don't know the right way to word that <laughs> yeah i mean i love i'm a huge fan just on the subject of audiences i'm a big fan of that um line from rick and morty which has very quickly become a meme of him at the convention of heist heist operators um, saying your booze mean nothing to me I'll see what makes you cheer (laughs) oh yes that's so so beautiful that's so that one is very good oh gosh okay Uh, let's 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 see what's another crack at it that we can take here Um, something I I like the idea of of, uh, winning and like it's not sports what's another kind of sports what maybe we should maybe we should uh, take apart an existing sports metaphor like oh like how about this there's only second place (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, yeah i guess you could say like 
because most places is not first place. Yes. What is it? Oh, it's second place is the first loser. Yes, so that's comedy, a phrase. It's, or it's if you ain't like first, comedy, you're last. Comedy colon, we're all the first loser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does it need to be set up? Do you think? Does it need to have a, a like? Um, no. Like, there's only one person in first place, or, or, uh, or the rest of us are. The first right, loser. It's all bit like the cake is a lie, isn't it? There is no first place. Um, <laughs> comedy. It's like sports, but there are no winners. Ah, <laughs> uh, I like it. I like the that. Sport, it's comedy. The sport you can't win. <laughs> yes. There it is. Stuart, <laughs> thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate his time. He had a lot of really great info and, and just advice in there. So I hope you got something out of that. Listen to his podcasts, Comedian's Comedian, and his new parenting one, Child Labor. Check out his show, The Infinite Sofa, on Twitch every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern for you North Americans listening and 9 p.m. GMT or BST, depending on when and where you're listening in the UK. Watch it at twitch.tv slash Goldsmith, and also check out the links in the bio. He has a bunch of stuff going on. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod. Also subscribe to our comedy lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal. Go to thereitispod.com for newsletter and support info. Links in bio. Great episode next week. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 